Welcome to the Readerly Report. Your hosts are Gail Weiswasser and Nicole Bonilla. We hope you will enjoy our candid book conversations, recommendations, and observations on the reading life. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so welcome to another edition of the Readerly Report. Today, Gail and I have a guest joining us. We have Ron Charles, who's going to be joining us from the Washington Post. And we are going to be getting into a reading life. And in addition to that, we want to talk a little bit about some unsung songs among books, like books that people really would enjoy reading, but maybe not have, maybe haven't heard of them. So great. Well, Ron, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you you here. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, we're big fans of your reviews, uh, both written and video. And I, I'm a, a DC native, so I have been reading you for years and years and years and oh, thank um, you. follow you, trust your opinion implicitly. So I know um, there was a what? book that I mentioned, I believe, on the show that I said, oh, Ron Charles gave it a good review. And I knew that Gail was interested in reading it. <laughs> I remember also last year I was at Book Expo and I was waiting in the autographing line for Tommy Orange. And it was like the day your review had come out of There There. And I went up to him. I said, do you know what a glowing review you got in the Washington Post this morning? He said, yes, I know. He was very happy. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great book, wasn't it? Yes, that was a great book. I love that book. It's so exciting when Um, that happens. Somebody you've never heard of, you know, just comes out of, to me, nowhere. I hadn't, I hadn't, I wasn't aware of his work before. I think this was his first book, right? And, uh, oh, I just thought that was a spectacular novel. Yeah, it was so good. Nicole, should we do our, our quick check-in on what we're reading, and we can ask Ron what he's reading, and then we can hop into our questions? Sure. I am uh, about three-quarters of the way through Danny Shapiro's memoir, um, Inheritance, which I'm really enjoying. I'm doing it on audio, so I'm getting such a personal take from her, and it's incredibly well done. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of her novels. This is actually the first of her memoirs that I've read, and I'm, I'm really liking that. And I'm reading, I kind of wanted a lighter book. Uh, I can't remember what I had finished, but I needed something lighter. So I'm reading this book called When You Read This. And it's... Is that by Mary Atkins? Thank you. I was going to say I'm blanking on the author. So I appreciate that. (laughs) I want to read that. Yeah. So it's told in blog posts and texts and email. And it's about a woman who has died and she's left behind this kind of blog on this dying website. It's like a website for people who are dying to journal and... The, it's about her sister and her former boss. And as they're trying to kind of cope with their grief, they're also reading through her blog and then dealing with their own issues. And it's it started out really funny and I was laughing out loud, which I almost never do. I thought of you, Nicole, because you said you don't like funny books. I was actually laughing out loud at stuff, but it's starting to take a turn for the, the, the more dark and the more serious. But I'm liking it a lot and I should finish that soon. I was saying, I was going to say, this is your light read. <laughs> I know, exactly. It's a woman dying, her journal. <laughs> classic. Okay, Ron, what are you reading right now? I am reading Susan Choi's new book. Uh, it's a prep school novel called Trust Exercise. Oh, I'm at 15 pages into that book. How are you liking it? I like it. She's uh, very witty, very funny. It's a very sexy book. I'm surprised by how advanced these uh, high schoolers are, uh, a lot more <laughs> than I was. I loved uh, My Education, which was her college graduate school novel, and Person of Interest, if you remember that book. So I've been a fan of hers for a while. 
good. I, yeah, I, I started that and then like this book came in from the library. So I put a pause on it and then I'm going to pick it up again in a day or two. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you're liking it. That's great. Yeah. She's a very talented woman. All right. Well, let's get into our conversation with Ron. So we have lots of questions for you about your reading life, about reviewing and kind of the relationship between the two. So first question we wanted to ask you is how you choose the books that you're going to review or that you're going to assign to someone else to review. Right. Uh, Two very different issues, and one I'm now free of. Uh, I don't assign anymore. I stopped that last year. But when I was assigning, which I did for more than 20 years, it was a matter of trying to pick books we thought would interest our readers, uh, provide lots of variety in subject and treatment and authors, and then match that up with someone we thought would appreciate that book. That was the primary quality we wanted, someone who would appreciate that book for what it was trying to do. And we've got this enormous database of everyone who's ever written for us, and we've got access to all the other writers you know, who write in English basically around the world. And we start that process of writing to them and describing the book and saying, do you like to do this? And frequently they say yes, but sometimes they say no, and then we can work on down the list. And some books, uh, tragically, particularly popular subjects, it's very hard to find a reviewer, either because everybody knows the author and their friends, you know, mm. uh, like Meg Wolitzer is impossible because everybody adores Meg Wolitzer and knows her. So trying to find somebody, you know, uh, outside of her sphere is really tough. Or subjects like uh, Civil War, all the Civil War experts, they know each other. They, they go to the same conferences, they serve on the same committees, they, you know, are jury prizes together. So to find somebody who's both knowledgeable and unencumbered by some sort of relationship to the author can be a challenge. Yeah. But I'm I out of that. So. I, don't, I, I don't have to assign books anymore. How do I pick the books I review? I try as much as I can to, I mean, I review literary fiction. Within that scope, I try as hard as I can to provide variety in subjects, tones, authors. I, I don't keep track, but I, I mean, I don't keep formal track, but I do, I am, I don't want to get into a rut. I don't want to just be reviewing one work of historical fiction after another or one academic satire after another. So frequently I'll skip a book just because I've already reviewed two books like that this year, even though it's probably a perfectly fine book. It just isn't right for me and somebody else will pick it up. I want to pick books by big authors because that's, you know, we are a newspaper. We're supposed to be covering the news of the arts in the book section. So Certain authors who publish every three or four years always get reviewed. At the same time, there are a lot of great authors. You mentioned uh, Tommy Orange, for instance. I mean, the debut author that there was not a lot known about him or his work, but you know what a find that was for all of us. So I do want to make sure that debut authors get in there every six or seven weeks. So it's a lot of competing interests and trying to make sure you're providing variety to the readers. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I feel like we always try to do when we're mentioning books, whether we like them or didn't like them, is to provide some sort of context for it. Like, I wasn't in the mood for this book, or I was a little bit more impatient with it because I feel like I've read this book before several times. Um, or maybe we picked the wrong format. That's happened. Or you picked the wrong format, you know, because listening in audio is not going to be the same experience as reading the book sometimes. But you do, <laughs> I'm looking at a review that you wrote for The President is Missing. So just thinking about how you review a variety and also a Dan Brown book that you reviewed, neither of which fared very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, 
you know, I am trying slowly to review more popular. He's trying to pictures. broaden. <laughs> yeah, because there are a lot of readers out there, uh, and they are interested, and the reviews do well online. You know, I know that sounds cynical, but it's not. I mean, but there's no use writing things nobody wants to read. Uh, right. So if people are interested in these books, uh, why not review them? And there probably are good popular thrillers out there. I just have not found them yet. Right. So you've been doing this for how many years, reviewing books? More than two decades, every week. Wow. Yeah. Oh, you mentioned so, the difference between uh, audiobooks, the format, the audiobook and the book book. I just had that illustrated to me so dramatically. I was a judge for the Audis this year, the best uh-huh. audiobooks of the year. So they send you these six books, which they've picked from a variety of genres. And I could not believe how different the experience was of listening to books as opposed to reading them. Books I thought I was going to love by the subject, and I would have loved had I read them, I thought were not very good at all as audiobooks. And other books that I never would have picked up to read, I was just completely entranced. Do you you think that was due to the narration, or do you think that was the uh, subject matter or the way it was written? I think it was a combination. There are certain kinds of books, particularly the detail in nonfiction that's really hard to listen to somebody read. The kind of stuff that you would pick up your reading speed dramatically to get through, or even, dare I say, skip. The audiobook reader has to just trudge through every last word. And that killed some books for me. Mm-hmm. Some of these audiobook narrators are just such great actors and actresses. I was just amazed how wonderful they were. Gail, I feel like you pick books to read based on if you have liked previous narrators, and I can't do that. Like, I feel like I tend to more easily listen to thrillers or mysteries or something where if you zone out a little bit, you will come back and you'll be fine in the story. Um, Something that doesn't have as much detail, Ron, as you mentioned, because, you know, some things to listen to are just different, you know, and I have read books or I've listened to books that I know that I would have loved the detail and I would have loved the experience if I was reading it on the page. But yeah, that listening to it was just a slog. Yeah. Yeah. I've really gotten into the memoir genre narrated by the author because I feel like it really enhances the in my enjoyment of it, like the Bruce Springsteen one or... Michelle Obama's book, because when you hear it in their own words, there's something so powerful about that. So if yeah. that's, I I kind of give preference to memoir on audio, but yeah, Nicole, I think you're right. I do kind of pick by narrator. This book uh, that won uh, Best Audio Book of the Year, The Children of Blood and Bone, it's a Afro fantasy YA book. Not the kind of book I would pick up, you know, just because not my field. Oh. But this woman, Bonnie Turpin, the narrator, she is unbelievable. I just could not stop listening to that book. Nicole, you read that, didn't you? I read that book, and I was—you—I felt like it was a little long in places. So I might have really just loved. I may have raved about it. You know, that might have been the difference between three and a half, four stars, and a five-star book if I had listened to it. Yeah, she's good. And my wife's listening to uh, "Sun Unburied," uh, "Sing Unburied," "Sing" by Jasmine Ward, and they use uh, three different narrators. And I've heard bits of it, and it is just spectacular, and really enhances that wonderful novel with those different voices. So you mentioned that you're a literary fiction fan, as are we. So if that, if if you weren't, you know, doing this for a living, do you think that's the genre you would read the most of, just naturally? 
Yeah, although I think I would also read more sci-fi, which I used to love but don't do now because we've, we've farmed that out to you know sci-fi expert types. Uh, I would probably read more nonfiction, too, than I do now. But mm-hmm. I, would keep, I would keep reading literary fiction, though, mostly, yeah. How do you think that being a reviewer has changed you as a reader? Like, do you... If, if there's a book, for example, that you know you're not going to review, do you read it differently, like maybe not as carefully or take less notes than if you know you're going to review it? Yes. I mean, I read so much faster if I'm not reviewing. Just There's just no comparison. I can just fly through a book if I'm not reviewing it. But if I'm reviewing it, you know, I can only read the book once because of my schedule. And I know by the end I'm going to be flailing around trying to remember what it was about and what the characters' names were and how old they were and where they lived and everything else. So I'm constantly taking notes about all those details in the first 50 pages. And then as I read through the book the rest of the way, I'm trying to figure out what was the book trying to do, how well is it doing that, what are the major themes here. I need probably three main points to talk about in my review. I need two good quotations to represent this author's style. So, yeah, I'm reading in a very precise, attentive, hyper-attentive way. But when I read for pleasure, you know, you just I just fly through a book. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the luxuries of being a podcaster. And Nicole, do you read, feel like you read differently now than now that we, you know we're going to discuss it or we're going to write about it? Not necessarily, because I think I always like to mark particular places. Like, I'm always interested in how culture is being communicated with books. So I pay attention to what people are eating, where they're going and what they're wearing. And I think I kind of do that naturally. And I like to know where a book is set and if I feel like it's an accurate representation and is it more about the people. So I I feel like I I track the certain things because those are things I'm just naturally curious about. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I will flip through and, and find the name, the names and things. But I think most of the times that we, we talk in such a uh, much more general way about books, like I feel like we don't have to get uh, as much into the history of it. So, Right. We don't have to put it in literary context. Context, right. Right. In a way that, <laughs> Ron, that you always do. You always sort of set it in the context of what's the genre we're reading, what other, what other books has this author written, what other books have been written that are similar to this or have a similar topic. That we, I think we have the luxury that we don't have to do that. <laughs> I feel like I read those reviews after the fact because I want to, you know, have my own experience with the book and then I'll search out a review that can put it in, in context and see what I think about it. Yeah. I don't blame you because there are so many reviews that just, exhaust the book by the you think left with this book after this <laughs> this reviewer has told me every damn thing that happens all the way to the end i'm i'm amazed at how many negligent overtelling reviewers are out there yeah i've always wondered about that too like when you were editing these would you just tear them down I mean, how did, did you tell them not to do that like it just oh, it's constantly. so strange yeah, I mean, if they were if they were regulars, I didn't have to tell them. They knew that they were. But uh, <laughs> yeah. if they were new people, often I would just be slashing paragraphs away. Like I don't need to know all this. It's not like you're a reporter and I sent you to report on something that actually happened. All you need to do is <laughs> tell me, you know, the context of this plot and give me the arc of the plot, but don't take me to the pot of gold. Yeah, it spoils it. 
Well, yeah. a lot of them do. Um, that's my cheat for nonfiction books that I feel like I won't get to read, but I want to know something about it. Then you just go to the New York Times review. They basically just tell you everything. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, a very prestigious magazine where you get, you know, you're several thousand words into the article before you realize, oh, this isn't a reported piece. This is a book review. And all they've done is sort of dragged all this material out of the book and presented it kind of as their own. And then in some casual way, they'll mention the book they're actually reviewing. Yeah. I think it works better for nonfiction because, as you say, you know, people want to read more, many more reviews than the, than books. Uh, and sometimes many nonfiction books are way too long and are really just Atlantic cover stories anyhow and should never have been made into books. Right. Uh, so why not just tell us everything that's in the book? Yeah. <laughs> I wish someone had done that with that hungover book I read or tried to read. <laughs> so, you know, he, at the end, he has this hangover remedy, but I, the, I've started to read it and it was very meandering. And finally, I just said, I, this is ridiculous. I just skipped to the end and read what the hangover remedy, but all of these reviewers, nobody would sell them out, which I think they were doing, you know, because they didn't, they wanted people to go buy the book. So they, nobody would actually put the remedy in their review. <laughs> it's <was> frustrating. <laughs> So I'm guessing that people constantly ask you for recommendations, probably your family and extended friends and everyone who knows you. So what book have you been recommending the most in 2019? Well, it's still a bit early, so I'm still recommending my favorite book from last year, which just came out in paperback. So oh, what was that? A Place for Us by uh, Fatima Farin Mirza. Oh, yeah, I read that. I thought it was gorgeous. So did um, I. Yeah, yeah. We 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 have talked about that book a lot on the show. Um, that last that last twenty five percent was amazing. Uh, just where yeah. she ties everything together. Yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, book. and I mean, I I picked it up very cynically because it was the first book in uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's new imprint. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh God, another TV star in an imprint. What do I, you know? I guess maybe that'll be a headline. But then the book <laughs> turned out to be so good. I thought. I thought, you know, wow, uh, I was so Im- so impressed by the new imprint and uh, Ms. Parker's taste and the fact that she'd give this, I think I think uh, Mirza is old yet, and she's written this, I think, really spectacular book about what it means to be a Muslim American now, where you're trying to hang on to your faith, but you're also trying to become part of the culture. It's, it's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Sarah Jack's, her taste is very literary. I agree now. Multicultural literary fiction. Um, I started reading her book, Golden Child, and that seems like it's, you know, it seems like she really enjoys these intricate family stories about identity. Yeah, I I totally trust her judgment. Okay, so you have reviews that I, I will just personally say, I read your reviews in print. I read them online. I get your email newsletter. I see them in Goodreads. Um, I see them on Facebook. And I also see your video reviews. So, um, it, oh, of course. Um, it's, but it's challenging today to be in the media because you have to cover so many bases. And I'm, I'm sure there's platforms that you're on that I don't even, you know, don't even look at. So I'm just wondering for you, where where do you find the most engagement with your audience of all those different things when you, when it's, you know, publication day and you've got something coming out, where are you generally seeing the best reaction? Uh, Facebook by a mile. Yeah. Which surprises me because I have many, many more followers on Twitter, but nothing happens on Twitter. I mean, you put stuff out there and it just 
you know, it disappears. Died. Yeah, it just dies in the sun. But on Facebook, where I have probably just a tenth as many followers, uh, people engage with it immediately and keep engaging with it all day long. It doesn't seem to disappear. Mm-hmm. And talk that, about the video series. When did, when did you start doing that, and what? When? How do you get inspired to to do that? Nicole and I have not yet ventured toward anything uh, visual. <laughs> I was going to say we, I wanted us to do a visual book of the week. Nothing. You know, I don't want to dress up or have any fancy green screen type things going on behind me. I think we could just start off with just, this is our book pick of the week first. But Ron, tell us about your process. Well, it started about 10 years ago when everybody, all my friends were losing their jobs or being asked to do just really ridiculous, embarrassing things like, uh, Oh, just the the sort of flapping around in public that we all had to do to attract attention to ourselves, I thought was humiliating for critics. <laughs> and I would see other senior critics, you know, prize-winning, famous people being subjected to this kind of treatment. I just thought it was awful. So uh, one afternoon, without any planning at all, uh, my wife and I decided we would, you know, what would be the most ridiculous thing? Well, it would be a book critic who was so desperate to reach young people who have such a short attention spans, we're always people, that they would want a video book review that was just a minute long. Uh, and so I ran around the house and read lines from my review that week, <clears throat> and then we put it up on YouTube, and I sent it around to my friends and said, ha-ha, look what they're making us do now. And somebody at the Post saw it, which kind of made me cringe. <laughs> and then they started asking for more, which I thought was just hilarious. And so it became kind of a thing for a few years where I would do these, uh, you know, this character, this anxious, stupid, vain, misogynistic book critic who embodies all the worst elements of the field. Uh, I would review different books, sort of as a, much more as a satire of book criticism and the industry than of the book itself. But then one of the editors of the Post didn't like it and kind of snuffed it out. Uh, he eventually got fired and new people came in about <laughs> three or four years ago and wanted me to start it up again. And so I did, and they sent a team to the house one day, a video team, and they gave us a fancy camera and told us how to use studio lights. And they spent about three hours here with us because they wanted them to look a little more polished than my wife and I were doing. And so since then, we've been doing about once a month, uh, and it's been a blast. I mean, it is so much fun. Uh, now, I, write the I write the scripts, and then uh, my wife films them, and then I edit them, and then I send them into the post, and up they go. Now, did you say that you, for every one when you're doing the opening, you change the books on a bookshelf behind you? I think in almost every case, yes. Sometimes I forget, but That's in most hilarious. cases... In most cases, the books are rearranged in some way to comment in some uh, appropriate or ironical way on the book being discussed. That's really and funny. Often they're, fake, often they're fake books. Uh, like when we did uh, a pretty mean takedown of Jen Sanchero uh, a couple weeks ago, I made up a bunch of uh, fake self-help books and put them behind me. <laughs> That's really funny. I'm going to pay more attention to that. <laughs> <laughs> spot the fake books all right all right so we each came to this episode with two books in mind that we think have been criminally under uh under read that people aren't aware of yes. so um 
We're going to go around. Why don't we just each go in turn? We can each do one and then we'll do a second round and we can each say uh, the book that we picked that we think people should be aware of and why we picked it. Ron, you go ahead. Okay, I'm going to pick a book from 2015 by a woman named Sophie McManus called The Unfortunates. It's a uh, about an elderly philanthropist and her ne'er-do-well son. I thought it was hilarious and smart and reminded me of Edith Wharton. Ooh, that sounds I, good. I, I know, raved I about it. Heard of that. I raved about it and nobody read it. <laughs> <laughs> did you make a video to do? We did not do a video, no. Uh, that would have done it. <laughs> um, okay, so my first pick is, God, I'm going to say 2016 also. It's called Days of Awe by Lauren Fox. And I don't know why this book hasn't gotten more attention. It's about a woman whose best friend has died and her marriage is falling apart. And it's just, she's very funny, but she's very sad. And it's just so beautifully written. It feels like this author, Lauren Fox, I feel like, like, I wish we were friends because she just seems so funny and smart and someone that you'd want to hang out with. So I recommend Days of Awe, which is, of course, a takeoff on, or the the title is a a reference to um, the High Holidays but it doesn't have anything to do with the high holidays. And it's just more about these, this, this very kind of sad and momentous time in this woman's life. I will recommend that too. I reviewed that. Oh, you did. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. My wife loved that book too. Yeah. I love that one. All right, Nicole. Okay. So mine is girl in snow. It's by an author called Dania Kafka. She did a book about, it's all about the aftermath of the death of a popular girl in high school. And it's told through the lens of people who watched her from afar. You know, there is this troubled young boy who seems like he's interested in her. And at one point is, is a suspect in her death. And it's told from his perspective. It's told from one of the girls in her class who she didn't necessarily get along with. And it's also, told from the perspective of the investigating police officer. Some of these people have connections that you become more aware of as the story progresses. But more than anything, it's not about solving her murder, but it is about how these small town inhabitants interact with each other, how their lives overlap. And I guess how we view crimes against how they're sensationalized, I guess, this young girl her death and what people think about her is sort of examined through these different lenses. And it was, it was really interesting and well done. I feel like it didn't get a lot of attention. I think people thought it was going to be more of a mystery and more of a, just trying to find out who done it. And it, it was not that at all. So round two. But me again, last year, a book by Tom McAllister called how to be safe. It's about an English teacher who is briefly considered a person of interest after a school shooting. And those few hours of her being considered a person of interest and her photo flashed up on television completely ruins the rest of her life, even though she's completely innocent and there's no reason that, you know, she should have ever been considered a suspect. It was just a a momentary sort of investigative lead. McAllister, the author, is the editor of Barrel House, that literary magazine. And I think this is the best, most unnerving novel about gun culture and social media and masculine sexuality. It's really dark, powerful satire and a 
just a brutal condemnation of the NRA and the whole ideology of and worship of guns in this country. I read that probably because I read your review and I agree with you. And that opening chapter, which I think is told from the perspective of the shooter before he goes into the school, like he goes to that fast food restaurant and what's going through his head was chilling beyond anything I've ever read. Yes. I forgot about that. It does begin that way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, that was, I, I like that book a lot as well. So you definitely, at least, at least somebody read it because of your review. <laughs> oh, <that's nice>. <laughs> <laughs> so my next one is, I think it was from two years ago. It's called Our Short History by Lauren Grodstein. And I don't think that that got a ton of attention either. Um, I'm a big fan of hers. She's she's written, I think, three novels. I didn't read her second one, but I read her first one called Friend of the Family. And then I read this one. And it's about a woman who's dying of cancer and it's, she's got a son who's about eight years old and it's all about her kind of coming to terms with how to leave him and how to, you know, also leave him with a legacy that he will be able to remember her, but he'll also be set up for the rest of his life with emotional support. And there had been an estranged father that he had never met and who I think didn't even know that he existed and he, the father comes back into the son's life. And it's all about that. And um, I mean, it's obviously very sad because of what's going on with her. But I just, I love her sort of parsing of families and emotions. I think she writes very realistically about how people feel and how they react. And the main character was not, um, I mean, she's not a saint. She's got flaws and she doesn't handle things well all the time, but I just thought it was an incredibly realistic depiction of a very sad situation. So I'm a big Lauren Grodstein fan and I'll always look at whatever she's got coming out. Yeah. I feel like I enjoyed uh, the other novel you mentioned that she wrote. I feel like she doesn't somehow, she just hasn't broken out yet for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. I think her books are kind of uneven though. Yeah, I feel like the one second come one, out, you really like it, and I think I may have read the second one. I was sort of, eh. oh, maybe that yeah. Was. I think you. I remember you saying that, and I think I had it, and it didn't. It just didn't grab me. But then this one I really liked. Nicole, you didn't read our short history, did you? Mm, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think you did. Um, but anyway, I recommend that one. Did, oh, I read the explanation for everything. That's the one that I didn't love here yeah, or that, or that I just didn't get into. I didn't, maybe I didn't give it enough of a chance. Right. So and I think right. I said that I really liked her writing and I would, you know, I would definitely want to check out any other books that she wrote, but I didn't love that one. Try Friend of the Family, which was. Uh, that her first novel? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's got to have been six or seven years ago and I can't even remember the fact pattern entirely. Something about, I think. Yeah, there it says was, it was published in 2009. Yeah. yeah. So thrilling toward the end, right? I, mean, I remember it racing along by the end. It's something about it. it was a family and a daughter for maybe a daughter was, oh, a daughter was dating the son. There was, there was a daughter, there was a, a, a friend of their family's daughter who started dating their son and they didn't approve of her. And they thought that she was a bad influence on him. And they were kind of trying to juggle like how much to intervene in his life. And I think you're right. There does end up being some thrilling resolution or some suspense or something. Right. So, okay, Nicole, what's your number two? So I went with River of Kings by Taylor Brown. I really like this book and it was a book that surprised me that I liked. Gail and I joke on the show. I think each year we probably read 15. No, I think Gail reads 10% of books by men and I, maybe I read 15 <laughs> or 20. 
So it's very few books that we read that have male authors for whatever reason. But I really love The River of Kings by Taylor Browns. And not only is it written by a guy, but it has two men in it. It's about two brothers who reunite to bury their father. Um, One of the brothers thinks that the father was... He does not feel like the death was accidental. Like he dies, I believe, in a boat where he was fishing and they're not they're not quite sure what happens to them to him you know it's thought that maybe he got bitten by a snake or did he have a heart attack but one of the brothers thinks that it's foul play so it is all about them taking this one final trip down the river that they grew up on Um, so it's a lot about their history their relationship with their father but it also tells the history of what they call in georgia the little Amazon. Um, it's the Alta, Altamaha River. And there's all these myths about like these sea creatures and history of how people used to historically interact with, with this river. So it's a whole bunch of that stuff that's woven into this tale. So it goes back to 1564 and the settlements that were taking place there. And it's the story of the brothers and their relationship to each other and the fathers. And I thought it was put together really well and really fascinating. Sounds cool. Very yeah, I've never heard of that. I think I yeah, mentioned I it on the show, Gail. Oh, you did? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I never heard of that today. <laughs> All right. So now we've come to the part where we're going to give you a little bit of a speed round and throw some questions at you and and see what you come up with. So... Um, the first question was, what are you, you reading? Warn, you didn't warn me about this. I know. Uh, I well, didn't even know about the speed round. I'm like, we are? <laughs> well, they're the, same, they're the same questions we always ask. Maybe they're not. Maybe speed round's not the right word. Okay. Um, the first question is, what are you reading now? And you mentioned, um, I noticed that you put on Goodreads, marked, you marked as reading a book that Nicole and I have talked about on the show last week, which was Women Talking, which was oh, about yeah, the men and white women. Yes, I wrote about that yesterday, but of course it won't be in the paper for three weeks. So, <laughs> oh, so you have read it? Can you t- can you tell us a little bit about what you thought? Well, I am a huge Miriam Tobes fan. I think she's fantastic. Uh, this book is not like any other that I've read of hers, and I think I've read them all, but the first one. It's based on a true and horrendous story, just unspeakable story, of Mennonites in Bolivia. The women believed they were being uh, attacked by spirits at night, or they were told they were being attacked by the devil because of their sins. It turned out hundreds of them were being raped by these eight creeps in their community who would spray some sort of drug through their windows, knock out everybody in the house, then come in and rape all the women and children, some as young as three years old. This went on for four years before, I think the story was one woman stayed up and caught a couple of these guys, and they confessed, and the community was going to handle it themselves. They don't have any formal legal system. But eventually the state authorities in Bolivia got involved and it became this worldwide, you know, you can imagine, shocking uh, case. But what's so amazing about this novel is it starts after all that. The crimes are done. The men are already off in town. It takes place over two nights as the women talk about what they're going to do next. And so it's these eight characters and we read this transcription by a young man, and that's a curious narrative choice, uh, while they figure out 
you know, what will they do? And what can they do? They're illiterate women. They have no skills beyond, you know, keeping the house and the farm. They don't speak the language of the country. They've never been out outside their community. They don't even have a map. They don't even know where they are. It's just amazing as they try and work out what shall we do. And they're seriously concerned about their chances for salvation because if they leave and they don't forgive their attackers, they're at risk of being damned. It's just an amazing uh sort of dialogue for two nights. Now, this is fiction, but is it is it based on something that actually happened? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, when I read the synopsis for this book, I was just floored. So I had to research the story that it's based on. I mean, it's, it's just horrific. It is. Just, it is uh, sort of unimaginable. And I've, you can see there's some uh, news video and stuff online, and it's just... I think the remarkable part of this book is the restraint because how easy it would be to let these sensational details of the crime sort of overwhelm the novel. But by starting after it's done and only dropping in these chilling little hints of what happened to these women, you know, very casually now and then we hear, you know, someone has a set of false teeth because all her teeth were smashed out during one of these nighttime rapes. Or a child comes up and she mentions that the child is no longer speaking. My God. It's just sometimes too much. That's awful. Okay, so tell us an author that you, or maybe you've got multiple, that you've read all of their books. I bet I've read all of Ann uh, Ann Tyler. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I have. And I love her. Mm Mm-hmm. I've read uh, probably not all the nonfiction, but all the novels by John Updike. Uh, and if you go back into the 19th century, because that was my field when I was in graduate school and was a professor, there you know other authors back there. I've read all their work, but that's uh, that's kind of that's another that's too academic and dreary. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, I would say, and of course, both Updike and uh, and uh, and Tyler have written a lot of books, so it's. Uh, yeah. A lot of a lot of investment in one person's view of the world. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, okay, what's a book that everyone else has read but you haven't read? Oh my god! Now there are a lot of those because I don't <laughs> review. You know, I don't review a lot of popular fiction, which a lot of people read. Uh, like I never read The Da Vinci Code when it came out, so I was, right. I was just out of that. Uh, but I did not read last year's uh, National Book Award winner, which I understand is fabulous. The Friend. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, that's it. I didn't read that either. Now I want to go back and read it. it just yeah, so do I. seemed like it was a little weird for me, but apparently feel, it's really good. Yeah, I feel bad. Uh, of course, saying that everyone's read that is a wild exaggeration. You know, you look at the sales on these uh, these excellent <laughs> literary novels, and you know, you it's about as it's about as big as your grade school. Well, I mean, everyone that you sort of talk to about books generally, as opposed to the general you yeah, know, reading right. world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, what's a book that everyone else loved that you didn't like? Well, it's so hard. I'll start with an easy one because he's long dead. Uh, a Separate Piece by John Knowles. Uh, that seems to be everybody's favorite book from uh, high school or middle school. And But I actually taught high school. And the more I read that book, the more I hated it. The thinner and... <laughs> More shrill and more obvious, it seemed. More contemporary books, I I 
I went to the Mars Room expecting to love it. I love Rachel Kushner's work. I thought Flamethrowers was brilliant, but the Mars Room I thought was dreary, bleak, and obvious. And it's probably mm. me because everybody else loved it. That's been on my TBR, so I'm intrigued now. Maybe I'll take it off. <laughs> no, I mean everybody liked it. It was up for all these big prizes, you know. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure yeah. it's just some some problem of my own. No. All right. Now I know you get books all the time streaming in for to you, but let's say that you're on vacation and you're at a bookstore and someone hands you twenty five dollars. What are you going to buy when you walk in? <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> cup of coffee, right? It's going to be greeting cards. Yeah, I every time every time I go into a bookstore, I buy a handful of greeting cards and postcards because I send them out constantly, and uh, I get you know way more books than I need or want. Uh, but uh, my greeting card supply is in in constant demand. <laughs> Got it. Right. Um, I feel like every time I step into a bookstore, it's, oh, yeah, sent that, didn't read that, heard about that. (laughs) Right. What's really bad is when Nicole and I are in a bookstore together, which happens maybe once a year, and then we just walk up and down the new fiction and we point at everything and discuss it. And usually (laughs) we haven't read them. We have opinions about them having never read them. Well, we have opinions about the covers, their past work. Yes. yes. What it's about. Who do we? Yeah. Who reviewed it? Who liked it? Exactly. Ron, how um, is your right, day well, structured in terms of reading? That's my one final thing before we sign off. I'm sorry. I missed the first part of your question. I said, how do you structure your, I mean, since your day, theoretically for your job involves reading, which is, you know, a dream of, of ours, I think. We would love to have more time to read, how do you separate out what you're reading for work and what you're reading for pleasure? And, you know, do you get to just go into your office at the Washington Post and sit there and read books? I, I don't have an office, so I don't go in that much anymore uh, because I sit in like a Dilbert cubicle with low walls and all my friends are sitting around me and all I want to do is talk to them or they want to talk to me. And so I, <laughs> I, it doesn't really work. And it feels weird to sit there in a, in a crowded office with everyone toiling away and I'm just... You know, reading. reading a book, yeah. So I don't. I go in fairly infrequently now. Uh, well, the day is uh, dominated by reading for work, for sure. Uh, the uh, reading for pleasure is all newspapers and magazines, mostly nowadays. Uh, but it's all front-loaded because I've got to write a review every Friday. So I start, you know, over the weekend and rank ramp up uh, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Thursday, I spend all day writing the Book World newsletter, and that's 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 hard. I usually start, you know, as soon as I get up, and I work till I go to bed. Uh, but it's fun. And then that's Friday, I that's a very substantive newsletter. There's a lot in it. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Do you think it's too long? No, it's not too long. Because it's all other, good. I see other book newsletters, and it's just like a couple, like little snippets of their book reviews, and they're they're done and. I don't know if any if we need another newsletter like that from me. So I'm trying to do something different, but I do worry that I go on too long. Well, what can you tell your open rates or click throughs? Like, are people making it to the end? Uh, I can't tell that. Click rates are good, and we uh, it seems we've never lost subscribers. It seems to be climbing every week. So yeah, no, I don't think it's too short. 
I mean, too long. I think it's like, it, it's, if the content is good, then people will keep reading. Okay. All right. Thank you for the encouragement. So Friday, <laughs> Friday, I write a review and then, uh, fiddle with it over the weekend. You know, I think it's so clever when I finish uh, Friday afternoon, then I look at it over the weekend and I think, God, this is just crap. Uh, and then <laughs> Monday I hand it in and my editor gets back to me later and we go over it together. And then it, it usually goes up online Tuesday and runs in the paper on Wednesday. And that just repeats over and over again. And then I try and do one larger book related feature a month. Uh, last month uh, I wrote about, uh, handwriting and uh, hand handwritten letters and that kind of thing and uh this month i wrote about those arcadia history books you see at all the local uh parks and gift stores and things like that i've seen them forever but i just finally wondered what are those books so i wrote about those in uh, today's paper you picked some really funny titles for the like you're like these books come out in the most arcane subjects. And I don't remember whatever you had chosen for the, you know, the, the, the samples were really funny because they were so obscure. Wasn't it? And that was not easy. That was not hard to find. I mean, they have 14,000 titles and I would say any, I could have randomly picked dozens of them. Right. Were just hilarious to me. Right. Now, do you have someone that, that opens all the book mail that comes in and like, like, how do you, how do you stay on top of that? All the, or yeah. are they all e-galleys at this point? Now, we've, we've been asked, but we've never been able to make the transition to uh, e-galleys in the office. Books that come in as e-galleys get immediately forgotten and never reviewed. Uh, I feel yeah. like I open books and, you know, on I try to read them. I forget that I'm reading. I need the book there as a reminder to be like, exactly. you are reading this. Yeah. Because right. I'll start something, and if it's not like the most compelling book you've ever read, then I'll forget that I'm reading it. Right. I totally agree. And if you're getting, we get 150 books a day. So, you know, as oh ebooks, God. they would just all vanish. Yes, we have. <laughs> but your question is, yes, we have a full-time uh, office manager. And uh, one of her duties is to go down and bring Open up 150 huge... books a day. <laughs> book, yeah. Open them all, separate them into piles of things she knows we're not going to do, things we might do. And then, you know, she takes this cart around and we all look and pull out things and then she shelves them all. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, it's a big physically demanding job. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine all those mailers coming in every day. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Nicole, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, that was it for me. All right. Well, yeah. it's been so great to chat with you. Oh, it's been such fun for me. I really, you know, I spend all my days alone, so I hope I didn't like rattle on. Like, <laughs> no, no, this all. is great. We could talk books all the time. Gail Excellent. and I talk about an hour each week, and I always feel like each time we have so much to catch up on. Yeah, yeah. It's very fun, very fun. And we want to just thank our listeners for listening. I hope they've enjoyed this very special episode of the Readerly Report with Ron Charles. Ron. I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of ways that people can follow you. Do you want to mention anything that you'd like people to the main ways specifically to, yeah. gravitate towards? Uh, the, the, my address is in the post. I'm happy to hear from anybody at any time. And uh, if you want to see the videos, you can see them at totallyhipvideobookreview.com. Uh, Definitely check there. that out. <laughs> yeah, we will, we will link to that. So we also would like to request of our listeners to leave us a uh, rating or a review on iTunes. It helps us out a lot. Keep reading and, and check out Ron's very, very funny videos. They're awesome. Mm -hmm.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Readerly Podcast. You can find issues of Readerly at readerlymag.com, and you can find me, Gail, blogging at Every Day I Write the Book, which is at everydayiwritethebookblog.com, and Nicole at Linus's Blanket, which is linusesblanket.com. Please subscribe to the Readerly Podcast at iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Until next time, keep reading.